Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. That's true. Hi there. It is Downtown, the podcast. I am Rich Kimball, joined here in our studios by Carrie Haskell for episode number 133. Brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A musical edition of the podcast this week with a couple of, well, Hall of Famers in their own rights. A little bit later on, Radio Hall of Famer and legend, Dr. Demento, will talk with us about a terrific new collection he's put together of the oldest novelty records of all time. But we begin the program this week, a really fun conversation with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, John Oates. Now, he and Daryl Hall have been making music together for, well, geez, more than 50 years the most successful duo in the history of pop and rock music. But when he's not playing with Daryl, John Oakes has, uh, well, somewhat different tastes. He enjoys the country music and, and the blues and is a music historian as well. And all of that comes to light on his brand new album entitled Live from Nashville. And we had a chance to talk with John Oates about the album, the making of it, the song selection, and about uh, what's made his collaboration last more than five decades with Daryl Hall. Man, I love the new album so much, and uh, uh, a gr- great opportunity for you, as I understand, to look at those songs, the country, blues, the songs that uh, you play when it's just you and your guitar. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how it started. <laughs> well, it's a really wonderful collection, uh, live in Nashville. Um, what's What's drawn you to that Nashville music scene, John? Well, you know, uh, back in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, when I really wasn't touring that much with Daryl, um, I just wanted to stay creative. Um, I, had, I had some mutual friends. I had done a production with a guy who uh, had a lot of Nashville connections. And, you know, he told me uh, that, uh, you know, he said, hey, man, you should go to Nashville, try to write some songs down there. And uh, that's what I did. He made some introductions and made some friends. And, uh, you know, over the early 2000s, I started to um, go there a lot. Uh, and as I did, I here again just uh, made better, you know, connections and friend friendships, uh, musical and personal, and uh, just started to enjoy being there. And my wife and I finally moved there, and uh, began to uh, I got involved in the early days of the Americana Music uh, mm. Association, and um, you know it just felt uh, it felt like a good thing for me to be able to rediscover my earliest. Um, influences and kind of go back to them and then find a group of people who could who could play that same music and uh you know help me take it somewhere else i wonder too because these days the music business has changed so much since you and and daryl first got started but now there's i think a certain freedom uh that people don't maybe have to worry as much about genres about pleasing record companies that you can just you can do the music you want the music you love without worrying about some of that other stuff that's totally true. I mean, you're, you're 100% right. It's uh, it's completely different. You know, we, um, you know, I've been an independent recording artist. I mean, actually, Daryl and I have been an independent recording artist right. since the mid-90s. You know, we did, we made an album in 96, I believe it was, uh, that we put out on our own label. So, you know, we were way ahead of the curve when it comes to that. And ever since that time, I've never been signed to a label. So, um, you know, I'm very, of course, then again, you know, I, I also realize I'm very fortunate that I have the great, you know, commercial success of Hall & Oates to kind of help me support that. Um, but, you know, I, I do what I want to do, the, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. And uh, 
that's uh, I guess is the ultimate creative freedom, really, when it when it when it comes down to it. I've been listening to the deluxe version of the album all week, and I love the music, but also really enjoy the introductions and some of the history behind the songs. Well, yeah, you know the um, the whole so- the whole show that evolved from the two years that I worked with the Good Road Band, it really started out as a singer songwriter storyteller show. Um, and it was things that I was doing on my own, you know, a solo guitar or maybe with just one, you know, another like Guthrie Trap accompanying me on a second guitar. And eventually it evolved into a full band, but I still kept the element of the storytelling in there. Um, you know, it was just one of those things where I just didn't know, you know, whether, the, you know, having all those stories uh, on the initial release was, you know, just a good idea. It might be too much, you know, for people who maybe aren't that interested. So we came up with the idea of releasing the album kind of a, you know, with just the music and then coming with the with the deluxe version afterwards. Well, what it's made me do as well as go back and, and re-listen to some Mississippi John Hurt. Well, uh, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nothing wrong with going back and listening to the originators. You know, that's what I always say. No question. We're talking with John Oates here on Downtown. I want to talk about a few of the songs on the album. One of them, I, I think music historians credit as being one of the first really successful murder ballads in whatever version, but in your version, Mississippi John Hurt's version, it's Stack Lee. Yeah, that's that song. That song's roots go way back in in American history, and and as you said, you know they that that song has so many permutations with different titles. You know, uh, you know it. Frankie and Johnny kind of comes from the same you know mm. same well. Uh, you know, Staggerly. I, Lloyd Price even had a hit in 1959. Right, uh, an actual pop hit with with his version of Staggerly. Um, so. You know, I just uh, happened to, you know, being a Mississippi John Hurt fan, you know, I always loved his take on it. So using that as the basis, um, you know, especially lyrically, I mean, I'm basically, you know, using the Mississippi John Hurt lyrics for that version. But we, you know, we changed it, changed the feel. We changed, you know, we kind of rocked it up a little bit, gave it a bit more of a rock and roll uh, kind of rockabilly feel. Uh, you also do a song by uh, one of the pioneers of country music, the old singing brakeman, Jimmy Rogers, uh, Miss the yeah. Mississippi and You. Uh, you do a, a wonderful version of that. That's one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, I'm really proud of that arrangement because if you listen to the original, it's it's, diff- it's different from the original, but I think it, it has the same spirit. You know, um, for me, you know, I didn't want to try to make a museum piece where, you know, trying to replicate the, the you know, trying to the original. The original is the original. I wanted to take the original and, and kind of perform it through the lens of who I am and, you know, my musical sensibility. So, um, you know, I, I was invited to play um, the uh, Bristol Rhythm and Roots Festival a long, quite a long time ago. And one of the themes of the festival was Jimmy, a Jimmy Rogers tribute. And uh, various artists were asked to perform Jimmy Rogers songs, and I, I chose that one. And then as I dug into that song, I began to change the chords a little bit. I changed the melody slightly. Um, you know, I just wanted to make it a little bit my own, you know. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm really – and I love the arrangement and, and what the band uh, did to it, you know, the way they, they play it. Um, you know, the, the band is so damn good, you know. It's mm. just incredible. And they, they always bring something very interesting to, to all these songs. Well, uh, you do one of my favorite country songs, Don Gibson's Oh, Lonesome Me, but you absolutely make it your own in your version of it. Well, yeah, I, I think I try to do that with almost everything. Um, oh, Lonesome Me is one of the first songs that I ever played uh, as a kid 
where I could accompany myself on guitar and sing at the same time. So that song goes way back uh, for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, um, it's just a great, great song. And here again, you know, every, every song on this album, you know, there's, there's nothing on this album that I just kind of picked randomly out of a hat and said, oh, here's a cool song, let's just play it. Every song has some sort of connection to me personally or musically. And it was a great surprise uh, to also hear an early Daryl Holland John Oates song from Abandoned Luncheonette, Had I Known You Better. Well, you know, I've got to, I got to, you know, I can't, can't, can't let the crowd get too restless. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, well, that's, a, you know, that here again, that, that song goes back. It, it, it's, Abandoned Luncheonette's probably my favorite album. And um, people always ask to hear that song. Of course, it wasn't a hit, you know, so it, it gets lost in the, uh, you know, in the, in the, the, the the storm of, of number one records, which uh, is, you know, a, a really good problem to have. But people always have loved that song, and it's just a really simple song that, um, you know, that the band here again did a, did a really great accompaniment to. John, how did Jerry Ricks influence your music? Well, it's almost it's almost hard to, uh, to, to, to tell you how much he has influenced me. He... I met him in 1968, I believe it was, um, and what happened was um, I was uh, looking for a, a part-time job as a college student in Philadelphia, and I uh, applied for a guitar teaching position at a small folk um, studio in downtown Philadelphia, and um, the uh, the woman who owned the, the she was a big uh, the woman who owned the, uh, the, the little folk uh, studio was, a, was, was big in the world of Philadelphia folk music. And one of the more advanced uh, teachers was a guy named Jerry Ricks. He was there. And I met him. I, you know, I was, a, I was a teacher. I was teaching a lot of beginning students. And he was, you know, I, once I heard him play, I realized he, you know, he really had a lot going on. And uh, he and I became friends. And I actually literally said, hey, man, I'd love to, you know, kind of pick your brain and take lessons from you. And so I began to take lessons from him. And, uh, and through that grew a friendship. And, you know, um, and then, you know, he, he and I, uh, as, as I got to, as I began to work with Daryl, I asked Jerry if he would play on the first two Hall and Oates albums. And when he came to New York, he brought uh, Mississippi John Hurt's guitar, oh, which wow. was given to him uh, when Mississippi John Hurt died. And so uh, I played Mississippi John Hurt's guitar on the first two Hall and Oates albums. So if you hear acoustic guitar on those records, in fact, on the song "Had I Known You Better Then," I'm playing Mississippi John Hurt's guitar. Oh wow, that's, uh, that's so awesome! I actually own that guitar now. I, I was I managed to buy it a few years ago. I uh, found it in Colorado, some in a collection. And uh, so yeah, so Jerry was just uh, very important to me as a, as a person, friend, and uh, an, an amazing influence. He he really gave me a lot of um, insight into the how did how a lot of these original pieces were played. Um, I got to meet people like Doc Watson and, and Sunhouse and people like that through him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, I can't even calculate how important he was. I really loved your album, Arkansas, as well. And, and, and both that and the Live in Nashville album it kind of remind us that the history of music is in many ways the history of America, the emergence of, of country and Delta blues and them meshing together in, in many ways to form rock and roll. And, and it's all there in those recent recordings of yours. That's right. Um, I, I really wanted to, um, I wanted to try to, you know, to, to just bring out the fact that, you know, pop music did not start with rock and roll. Um, American popular music started really, I mean, you know, 
basically with the with the you know it coincided with the development of the phonograph record player and uh, and and radio. Uh, once people began to be able to uh, hear and, and appreciate music in their homes, um, it really created a music industry and it created the the, the legacy of pop of pop music. And so once I started digging into that you know that idea, I wanted to bring that forward. Uh, you know, in Arkansas and the live album, you know, really are that that's what they that's what those records represent. Uh, when you and Daryl started playing together for the first time, what was it you heard in each other that made you realize you had something special? Um, I don't know. I think we kind of completed each other in a weird way. Um, Daryl was a more formally trained um, musician. You know, he had studied classical music. and But at the same time, you know, he sang in church. His mother was a singing a singer. His, his father and his uncle sang in a, like a, a kind of a gospel, you know, group. So um, he had a, a soulfulness and a, and a kind of a gospel upbringing, but he, but he backed it up with, uh, you know, with with a more sophisticated level of musicianship. I, you know, I was much more of a roots, you know, musician playing here again, playing this similar to to what the you know the kind of music that I'm playing now. Um, and I brought that to him, and he was not that aware of that that side of of things. So, you know, I taught him, you know, a lot about traditional American music. He taught me a lot about uh, playing, you know, being becoming a more sophisticated musician. And I think that really um, that really worked, uh, you know. And and eventually, those those kind of primary roots, kind of they they were just absorbed, and we created something totally new. That that really was neither of those things. I read an interview, and you talked about the fact that uh, all the Daryl Hall and John Oates albums are that. It's not Holland Oates; it's Daryl Hall and John Oates. And how important was that to allow you to also keep your individual identities? It was very important to us because we saw ourselves that way. Um, you know, we know as soon as we began to perform together in the early, early days, way before our record contract. You know, we were playing uh, art galleries and coffee sh- houses and things like that in, in, in the downtown Philadelphia area. And what we would do is he would sing a song and I would accompany him. And then I would sing a song and he would accompany me. Um, and that's kind of the gist of what we were doing. We, we were actually very rarely sang together. It was just one of those things. Um, I don't know why it happened. Uh, it just was. I mean, you know, um, and we, we wanted to be... We wanted to be two individuals. You know, it was very important for us to, to to be two individuals. And is that one of the things that's allowed you to continue to collaborate after all these years? Um, yeah, I think having the knowing knowing in the back of our minds that that we, we we had this kind of creative freedom, I think that was important, very important. Um, and uh, we, we, you know, we allowed each other to do other things from the very beginning. I mean, if you go back, Daryl made solo albums in the 1970s. Right. Um, you know, I was producing and doing writing with other people, you know, here and there. So, uh, you know, but I didn't, of course, take my solo career seriously until really the end of the 90s. But that was just because I had other things I needed to do first. These are tough times for uh, performers. Uh, how have you been making it through the pandemic? Well, you know, I I I had to uh, embrace a new reality, like all of us have, on every level, whether it's musical or personal. Um, and uh, it took me a while. Uh, and then once I realized that I, 
you know, that I, I wasn't going to travel, that I wasn't going anywhere, which has really been my whole life. I mean, I, I never really unpack my bag, you know. Um, it, it, my bag stays packed. I mean, I could literally get up out of bed, put on a, put on some clothes and go to the airport without doing anything else. Um, and so once that changed, I, I settled into a much more introspective, um, you know, uh, routine. I started listening to different music. I started to, I, I put my home studio, I kind of tweaked my home studio a little bit, you know, did a lot of the things that I'd left on the back burner. Uh, and I began to write and uh, started writing like a crazy person. I think I've written more songs in the past six or seven months than I've written in the past six or seven years. So, um, you know, I got involved with a movie project, which I'm just completing. It's really a great, great little independent film called Gringa, story of a young girl who goes to from California who goes to Mexico to find her estranged father. And I wrote four songs for that movie, collaborated with a with a Mexican singer, sang in Spanish, you know, so did some really unique things that I never, really never would have done had I been on the road or, you know, in my general routine. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, John, it's a great to talk with you. Really love the new album. You make those songs sound so fresh and new, and I've enjoyed your solo work and your work with Daryl for so many years. Uh, thanks so much for making time for us today. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you uh, appreciating it and <laughs> spreading the word, man. All right, be well. Stay safe. All right, all the best to you. That's John Oates. The new album, Live from Nashville, and it is a good one. Fun conversation with John when we come back. Oh, another one in part two of the podcast this week. The great Dr. Demento is in right after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. All kinds of fruit. And say, by the way, we have an old-fashioned tomato and a Long Island potato. But yes, we have no bananas, not one. We have no bananas today. Oh, my goodness. I remember that one well from back in 1923. I was just a youngster. At the time when Billy Jones released that, uh, that's one of the many great songs and wonderful finds on a brand new collection called First Century Dementia, the oldest novelty records of all time, put together by our next guest and many of them from his own private collection. So much fun to catch up once again with the legendary Dr. Demento. How's it going? Wonderful. So good to have you back with us. And we have been enjoying listening to this CD so much. What inspired you to put together some of these uh, incredibly wonderful early comedy recordings? Well, I've been collecting comedy records for most of my life, starting when I was 13. And I discovered that the Salvation Army store in my hometown had records for a nickel apiece or sometimes two for a nickel. <laughs> And there were a lot of these old comedy records in there. Uh, but also I have to give credit to John Caffiero, who runs uh, Demented Punk Records, which put out my album Dr. Demento Covered in Punk a couple of years ago. And uh, we looking for something different to follow it up. And uh, we happened upon this concept. Well, as much as we love the music, uh, both Carrie and I have been loving 
the notes that were put together, and, and you're the man responsible for those. Yes, yeah. I, I, I take the credit or the blame for those. <laughs> and it's funny, we were talking oh, not too many months ago uh, with Billy Vera, and he was telling us about uh, your work in the early days uh, doing liner notes and some research at specialty records. Yes, yeah, that was, that was my first real gig in that, uh, that area. Well, I want to talk about some of the songs on this new collection. And let's start with Bill, uh, Billy Murray, who appears on here quite a bit. But was there anybody who recorded more in the first 20 years of the century, all types of music, than Billy Murray? You know, I don't believe so. I think you're right. Certainly of all the singers. Uh, Irving Kaufman was right up there. He, he didn't do many comedy records, but did a few. But Billy Murray was most noted for his comic songs, as they called them in those days. Well, I especially enjoyed his take on the Prohibition days as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of that. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, another one that uh, struck home with me because it's a song that for some reason I was very familiar with as a child, so it it had some pretty good legs on it, and that's uh, the recording of Barney Google. Yes. Yeah, that even... Even though the comic strip character has pretty much been forgotten, uh, th that song caught on. It's a, it's a good tune with a, a nice melody and, uh, uh, yeah, a good storyline and all that. We're talking with Dr. Demento here on Downtown. Uh, of all the selections on this CD, I think the one that uh, I, I had not heard before, but I found the most fascinating, the ravings of, of John McCullough. Can you tell the backstory on that for us? Yeah. John McCullough was an actor born in Ireland. Uh, he was best known for Shakespeare. He was a serious actor uh, in the 1870s and 1880s. He came to the USA, but then he came down with a form of syphilis, which affected his brain. It's something that can be headed off with drugs now, but not in 1884. And so uh, it, it made him go crazy. Uh, it it, uh, it caused him to forget his lines and rave uncontrollably on stage, and it sometimes would strike in the middle of a performance. And there's one performance in Chicago on September 29th, 1884, that uh, caused him to do that. And, and so, uh, though he died shortly after that, uh, that performance became legendary, and uh, so... Various actors would imitate the ravings of John McCullough on stage, and it became kind of a set piece that was done by various comedians in those days. And uh, one man who remains anonymous, I don't know who it was, recorded the ravings of John McCullough in 1895 for uh, Berliner Records, which was the first company that made disc records popular as opposed to cylinders, which was what Edison invented. Now, that uh, you mentioned that that was recorded in 1895, and these songs yeah. all came from uh, discs that you have collected. Is that pretty much the oldest comedy disc in your collection? Yeah, that, that, that would be the oldest one that I have in my personal collection. But when you oh. talk about people dying... Uh, <laughs> I was struck by the story of uh, of Bert Savoy, of Savoy yeah. and Brennan, who met uh, quite yeah. an untimely end. Yes. <laughs> he was 
he he was uh, known as as one of the first gay comedians who did not hide his sexuality, and uh, so he was kind of scandalous, uh, but he he enjoyed it, and and one real fame headlining was Zigfeld Follies in 1918, and with Jay Brennan as his straight man, so to speak, uh, he report he. He developed these dialogues, uh, which had repeated phrases like, you must come over. And uh, anyway, that, that was the title of the, the record that we used. And on June 26, 1923, just weeks after making that record, Bert Savoy was walking on the beach with two friends and his half-brother when a thunderstorm came up. And after a thunderstorm, after a thunder, excuse me. After a thunderclap, Bert Savoy commented, "Ain't this God cutting up something awful or something like that?" And was immediately struck dead, along with one of his friends who was walking with him by a bolt of lightning. But uh, he was with uh, another friend and his half brother, so they remembered what had happened. Wow, that is an amazing story. Now uh, yeah. the collection ends with a song that I've heard many times before, and I think probably the first time I heard it was on your show, known as The yeah. Laughing Record. Yes. That was recorded in Germany in, uh, let's see, 1922. And uh, actually, there was a laughing record before that by another man, but the, the one that became popular was recorded by anonymous artists in Germany, in Berlin, in 1922, and uh, it, compo- it, consists, it consists simply of uh, a trumpet player trying to play a piece and uh, messing up now and then. And so pe- when he messes up, plays a wrong note, people laugh. Uh, as uh, when he played repeat, when he tried to play the same little piece several times. And never got it right. People would laugh all the time. And so they, they put this on a record. And since laughter is the universal language like music, uh, you didn't have to speak German in order to understand this. So uh, it, beca- it became a bestseller all over the world. And uh, it was called the OK Laughing Record in this country because it came out on OK Records. Originally, it was the Beka Laughing Record. Uh, B-E-K-A, the German, which one of the major labels in Germany at that time. And uh, the original title is The Missglückte Jugendzeit, which can be translated The Misfortunes of Youth, and it refers to the piece the cornet, the cornetist is trying to play, Aus Jugendzeit, like, like youth, from, from youth, rather. And... Uh, so that's the history of the OK Laughing Record in brief. <laughs> it was imitated by many other labels, but the original was the best. Uh, I enjoyed hearing from uh, Harry Lauder, uh, a legend uh, for, for many, many years. And uh, as yeah. you point out, uh, um, there were times when, um, well, perhaps perhaps he maybe had a drink or two during, during the session or at least on the road. Uh, I think he was good at imitating the sound of somebody who'd been drinking a lot. I mean, not that he didn't drink himself, but uh, uh, 
Stop Your Tickling Jock, which is the piece that we used, was the first of 22 songs that he recorded in one marathon session on December 12, 1909. People usually recorded just three or four songs at most in a session, but Harry Lauder did 22 songs, and that was the first one. He does not really do his, his drunk act on that one, but he did in several of the others from that session. Uh, so uh, we, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I figure he just was pretty good at impersonating a thick-tongued person. <laughs> Working on uh, gathering this CD, how did you narrow down the scope of your collection to the ones that were going to be, you know, really representative of, of the comedy recordings of that era? Oh, with, with difficulty. Yeah, it was hard <laughs> to narrow things down. Uh, and John Caffiero, the album's producer, helped me narrow things down somewhat. And uh, for somebody who's younger and hadn't known this, music all his life it was good to hear his viewpoint well, to mention one one way in which we had to narrow this down uh and but uh, it can't it can't be helped and there's one way in which this does not give a complete picture of the comedy recordings of that day and that's because a lot of the comedy in that day was what would be considered today to be heavily racist right and we 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 kissed off those those pieces. You do a, mention that in the liner notes, though, that one yeah. of the uh, one of the uh, artists on here, Burt Williams, who was a a black comedian in the what, yes. the teens and twenties, but to perform and on the vaudeville stages, he often performed in blackface. Yes, yeah, he did, and uh, it it made it somehow more acceptable. Hmm. Because people were used to seeing uh, white comedians in blackface. It happened all the time. Going back to the minstrel shows of the latter part of the 19th century, which, in which all the performers, which were usually all white, wore blackface. Uh, you can go to uh, the doctor's website at drdemento.com, and you can order a signed copy of First Century Dementia. And also, uh, there will be a special, I believe it's a two-album vinyl release that will be timed up uh, with next Friday and National Record Store Day around the country. Yes, a week from Friday. Right, the 27th. That is absolutely yep. wonderful. And, of course, the Dr. Demento Show continuing on the website. You can subscribe and check that out every week as well, again, at drdemento.com. This is, it's not just an enjoyable collection, but it's a, it's a part of our history, and it's so wonderful to hear these, uh, these recordings. First Century Dementia, the oldest novelty records of all time, the newest release from Dr. Demento. Doctor, it's so good to talk with you again. As always, thank you for making time for us today. Why, sure. Yeah, happy to do that. Thank well, you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Uh, check out my show. You know, I still do a new show every week, and it can be heard at drdemento.com. And uh, I have another album out, which I mentioned, Dr. Demento Covered in Punk. And that is fabulous as well. We were happy to play some of the songs from that. We look forward to much more from the Doctor, who is always in in our world. Thank you, Doctor. Oh, right. Doctor Thank you, Rich. Bye-bye. And that's fun. Do we love it? Second time the doctor has visited with us, and uh, we love it when he comes on the show. 
it's always an education with him too. It's, it's fun to talk to, but man, the the history of the music is important, and uh, no one knows it better than he does. Love the stories. Love the story of the guy. I got struck by lightning after <laughs> commenting on the storm, and boom. Yeah. <laughs> and and really, the music's great, and it's a wonderful bit of our early 20th century history. But those liner notes that Doctor Demento put together are are just fantastic yeah it's a that's a great read in itself but uh, you sit down and, and listening to the history after after hearing after reading about it is is just a win-win uh, more information at the doctor's website drdemento.com where you can also of course hear his weekly show as well our thanks to dr demento to john oates and thanks to you for joining us this week on downtown the podcast brought to you by cross insurance for carrie haskell i'm rich kimball we'll see you next time right here on downtown